Well, super excited to be together with you who have gathered in person, excited to be able to share a message with those of you who are watching online, and, and welcome to you, those of you in the classic service, those of you on the Moon Campus, just great to have the opportunity to look into God's Word and understand more of what He might be speaking to us today. And I believe that there's a lot to come in that regard as we take a look at the passage that is before us today. So here are a couple thoughts as we get started. Bigfoot is real. The earth is hollow. Apollo 11 never actually landed on the moon, and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin did not walk on the surface of the moon. That was simply a Hollywood set that was set up so that we might believe that that was actually true. Or so believes... 10% of Americans. This, however, is the one that most people take a look at today, and still, the majority of Americans still believe that this was a cover-up, just like all of those other things have been suggested to be cover-ups, that this is probably the greatest cover-up of all. A survey was taken just a few years ago that revealed that 60% of Americans believe that this is just a cover-up, that Lee Harvey Oswald was killed himself to cover up the truth, that he wasn't acting alone, and that the government was involved in that assassination. This has been said to be the greatest cover-up of all time, the assassination of JFK. Here's the thing. There's a greater cover-up than that. And I'm going to talk to you about that today. Have you ever tried to cover something up? Have you ever tried to hide something from someone or from somebody, from something else, from it getting out there? Of course you have. We all have. Maybe you hide a a piece of jewelry at home, or maybe you hide some money. Everybody hides a little bit of money here and there. Just stop hiding it in the refrigerator, because everybody's figured that out now, all right? Find a different spot to hide Don't be like the woman, however, who wanted to, she was mad at her husband, and she wanted to hide their life savings from him, which was $7,000 in cash they had in the house. So how did she hide it? She ate it. She ate it. $7,000 in cash. She ended up in the operating room. Now, I know that sounds foolish, but the doctor said she actually had some sense. So... I take booze as a vote of approval, so thank you very much for that. That's an, by the way, that's a true story. Uh, this says part, all right, that's me. But um, yeah, absolutely. My wife Carolyn is actually very good at hiding things. In fact, she's a little bit too good because what she does is she'll, she'll find something that uh, she thinks that'd be a great Christmas gift for the kids, but she finds it in April or in July or something, and so she hides it at the house until Christmas comes along so that they won't find it. And the problem is that when Christmas comes along, she can't find it either. She doesn't know where it is that she put Some I see a lot of heads nodding. Apparently some of you do exactly that same thing. And it can be months. It can be years later when we actually discover where that gift is, where it finally turns up again. So this Christmas... Our grown children are going to get Hungry Hungry Hippo (laughs) and Mr. Potato Head. Yeah, 
Because I told you, she's very good at hiding things. Truth is, we're all very good at hiding things, aren't we? And it's not just physical things. We can be good at hiding our thoughts. Good at hiding emotions. We can be good at hiding actions that we've taken. Today we're going to be taking a look at a very important psalm. Very much looking forward to taking you to it as we continue on with this series that we just began last weekend called Psalms, a soundtrack for our lives. And we're calling it that because the Psalms deal with a lot of circumstances that we find ourselves in. And if you have a certain emotion that you're feeling, if you have a certain something you're going through, it might be a high like praise, it might be a low like a struggle. There is something in the Psalms that speaks to who we are and where we are. It's a soundtrack for our lives. There's something there that can speak to the situation that you are in. Last week, we took a look at a wisdom psalm. Today, we're taking a look at what is known as a lament psalm because we'll see the psalmist is going through a lot of struggle and they're lamenting circumstances that have transpired in their life. And this psalm that we're looking at actually deals with a cover-up, a great cover-up, and that's actually what we're, we're calling this message, the great cover-up. I'm not the first person to use this title for this psalm, and I think you'll see that as, or see why as we make our way along. The psalm that we're going to be in is Psalm 32. So if you would go ahead, if you haven't already, open up your Bible, open your Bible app, something to Psalm 32, and you can see this. There's some very rich stuff here, and you're going to find yourself in this psalm. At some stage, you're going to find yourself in this psalm. Psalm 32 is where we find it. I've said before that if you just sort of flop the Bible open kind of in the middle, you pretty much hit psalms. You might have to go just a little bit to the left, or you can use your table of contents or search it, whatever, to find your way there. And uh, we're going to take a look at this psalm together today. Now, last week we learned about superscriptions. Those are things that before the actual verses start in a psalm, there are some other things that are written there. Not all of the psalms have superscriptions. The one that we're looking at today does. It has a superscription. One of the things that a superscription will tell you is who the author is. And this one tells us. It says it's a psalm of David. David. King David. The guy who had all that power and all of that wealth. He was known as a man after God's own heart. However, he didn't always live that way. And he wasn't always that way. In fact, there's a rather well-known circumstance of, of David that you can read about in 2 Samuel. It talks about him and this encounter that he had with Bathsheba and the sin that they entered into. Then it talks about how he compounded that situation by, by essentially sending her husband off into battle to get killed. You may as well consider it murder for the way that he knew that circumstances would unfold. And then what David does is he covers it up. He tries to pretend it didn't happen. He tries to keep it from others. And he tries to keep it from God. And what this psalm is, is the response. It's kind of what comes out of that situation and that circumstance that transpired in David's life. And we're going to see how he processed it. We're going to see the twisting that goes around, or that he's trying to create around him of the story itself and of the circumstances, how they went down, as well as the twisting that is going on in his own heart, in his own spirit, and in his own soul. That's what Psalm 32 is. It's following up all of that 
situation in his life. Now, it could be that you have your own sort of cover-up that's going on in your life. And chances are, I don't need to try to unearth that and try to help you bring that to the surface. I'm guessing it's already on the surface. I'm guessing it's already something that is very much in the front of your mind. Maybe you've been trying to cover that up. Maybe you've been trying to hide that for yourself. And it may be, as we get into this, that you're like dreading the, the, the time that we have remaining together today because it's going to be like, this is just going to be so super awful because I'm just going to feel so convicted about this whole thing. But I just want you to pause that thought for just a minute because what I believe is as we look at this text, it might just turn out that you find these to be the most encouraging moments you've ever had in church. I really believe that that could be the case. So let's open up our minds and our hearts to how God might speak to us through David's situation and what we find his sense is in all of this. And we get sort of a feel for where this whole thing is going to go with the very first word of this psalm. It is this, blessed. This is where the psalm of lament starts with the word blessed. That's how David finds himself That's how we can find ourselves as well. There are a few realities here in this psalm to consider with you when we think about this great cover-up. And the first of those realities is this. It's the happiness of God covering your sin. The happiness of God covering your sin. There's an outline there. You can fill in some blanks as we go along. This psalm isn't written in chronological order as David was experiencing it. And we're going to rewind in a couple of verses and we're going to get back to kind of the start. But here we see David sort of sort of going right to the good news, right to this. It's like it, it's so overwhelming for him. He can hardly hold it in and just sort of bursts out what he needs to say, what he feels like communicating here in this, what he's experienced for himself. It comes right away in verse 1. He lets us know about it. Psalm 32 verse 1 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, just a cursory reading of that, or maybe a cursory listening of that, makes it sound like, well, that's really redundant. He just kind of seems to say the same thing over and over again. And actually, you're kind of right in that. And it's not, it's not accidental. And it's not insignificant. He's doing this for a reason, a couple of reasons, in fact, that it, it reads the way that it does. One of the reasons it sounds redundant is because, in part, it is. Because this is Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry uses a technical or a literary device called parallelism, and in this particular case, it is synonymous parallelism. Now, you can probably figure out what that is. Synonymous parallelism in Hebrew poetry means that something is stated, and then it's stated again in just a little bit different way, but it's making the same point that it made the first time. Then it says it again, and so on. Usually, there are two stanzas of that, and so you've got a statement, and then you have a restatement. In this particular case, you've got three You've got a statement, then another statement that's similar, only a little different, another one that's making the same point, but just a little bit different. So let me, let me point some of this out to you, because what we see here are statements where he's saying sin, sin, sin in three different ways, and then he doesn't leave it there. He says along with the sin comes forgiveness. Let me spell this out for you here, all right? So the first word that we find in this passage for sin comes right there in verse 1. It's the word transgression. Transgression, right here. It's the Hebrew word pesha. 
All right? Now, transgression, the, 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 I guess, nuance of this particular word for sin is it's saying or it's talking about the fact that it is rebelling against God. That's the nature of this particular word, that it's a rebelling against God. This is a notion that is absolutely essential for us to grasp and understand if we're going to get what sin is really all about. If we're going to understand the true nature of sin, we need to understand first and foremost that it is a sin that is an offense toward God. It's an offense against God. Now, it might also be that it's an offense against somebody else who's in your life, but oftentimes we go to that side of things and we sort of dismiss the fact that that God is the one who ultimately is being offended in the sin because God is the one who has established the standard of righteousness. So whenever we take, and because because we're sinning against His His directive because we're sinning against his establishment of righteousness. That's the thing that actually requires the cross. It's the thing that required Jesus to go to the cross and die. And so when we choose to transgress against that standard, we essentially are mocking the cross. We essentially are mocking God. And a good way to think about your sin is that whenever you sin, it's as though you're slapping the face of Jesus. Because that's what we're doing. See, so often, though, we don't really think of it in those terms. We think of it, uh, how it's affecting me, this sin, or maybe how it affected somebody else when I sinned. We don't go to, what does this mean in terms of my relationship with God and the separation that I'm creating between myself and God and what it is or how it is that I'm dismissing the very things that I say are so important to me through the cross, and I'm simply dismissing them. I'm suggesting they don't have the hold on me that they need to have. Sin is first and foremost a rebelling against God, and David is acknowledging that. And by the word that he is choosing here, he is saying, be sure that we understand that's the nature of what's going, and that's what's really, really going to be, as we'll see, working against David or working on his heart that is really causing him to stop up short. The second term that David uses for sin is the word translated in the NIV as sins. Katat is the Hebrew word there. This is an archery term. It means a missing of the mark. You've probably heard that before when it comes to sin. So here's my question. How many of you are enjoying the Olympics? All right. Really? Five of you? Okay, they're the rest of the hands. Okay. I think it's awesome to watch the Olympics. I don't know if you've seen any of the archery or not, but it's amazing to watch those men and women hit this tiny little bullseye, and they're shooting these arrows from like 70 meters. 70 meters. That's a long distance. Just to to give you a little bit of sense of how far that is, it would be like me shooting from where I'm standing out beyond the lobby, outdoors, beyond the carport, and about a third of the way across the parking lot. That's 70 meters. I thought about bringing a bow and demonstrating that for you here today, but figured that'd be your reaction, and uh, I don't think we have enough insurance around here for me to, uh, to do that, but, but that's what it would be. Olympic archers are given a target to hit, and rarely do they miss, but sinners do. That's exactly what we do. We miss the target. There's a target that we've been given as well. It's the target of the will and the Word of God to follow after, but we miss the target, or sometimes we don't even bother to take aim. 
and demonstrate that we're really shooting for what God's will would be for us. We just sort of live. We kind of go here and there, wherever the wind blows. We're not even aiming. And it's really no surprise that we miss the mark. Then the third term is oftentimes translated iniquity, but in this particular case in the NIV, it's translated sin, hawan in the Hebrew is the word here. And the nuance that we have for this particular one is it means corrupt or crooked. It's talking about the condition of the heart of one who's just disregarding God. It's talking about what's going on, the twisted nature of what's going on actually inside of us. Now, that sounds pretty bleak, like a bleak condition to be in, and it is. However, the blessing of these verses, the reason that that David comes out and he says, blessed is the person who's this, this, and this, is because they're not left alone. Because in each case, there is a blessing that is spoken. We're not stuck. We're not left in the sin. And so what he tells us here, if you read or listened carefully as we went, if you go back and look at verses 1 and 2, it says in relationship to the transgression, our rebelling against God, he says what God does is he forgives, that it's forgiven. He says in relationship to the sins, the missing of the mark, he says in relation to that, that that's covered. And in relation to sin, he says, it's not counted against us. Would we not consider ourselves to be blessed if this is our situation? David says, this is amazing. I can't hold this in. I've got to tell you first before I say anything else. For the person who confesses their sin, God forgives and He covers and He doesn't count it against us. That is absolutely amazing. It's worth the price of admission, just right there. And David is like, I, I just can't wait to tell you this. So let me put it out there, just right in the front. That's his reaction. Should be our reaction as well. But sometimes it seems that we don't, and I have to wonder why, why that is, that we don't have that same sort of response when we read verses like this, or, or maybe when we come to ask God for our own forgiveness. And I wonder if it might have something to do with not really considering or understanding the weightiness of our sin, kind of back to where we were starting, that we don't really understand the significance of our sin. Because if we don't understand the weightiness of our sin, we're never going to come to understand the significance of the forgiveness of God. If we minimize the nature of our sin, how bad it is, how much it is an offense to God, we're going to minimize God's forgiveness. And again, we're going to shortchange the cross. We're going to shortchange the work of Jesus. We need to recognize genuinely who we are and where we are. David understands that, and we, just, and we can see that. And as he does so, it speaks or it brings up for him this second reality that he, that he turns to now. And now we are going back to the beginning of what happened, at least chronologically, as it relates to this psalm. And the second reality is this. It's the harmfulness of you covering your sin. All right? We started with the happiness of God covering your sin. Blessed just means happy. The happiness of God covering your sin. And now the harmfulness of you covering or trying to cover up your sin. The first cover-up is God's doing to our benefit. The second cover-up is our doing to our detriment. David writes of his own experience here in verse 3. It says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away 
through my groaning all day long. David's silence in the aftermath of his encounter with Bathsheba and then with Uriah would have lasted about a year. That's how long he's been covering up this sin, how long he's been refusing to deal with it. And he does that because it seems to him that that must be the best way forward, that that must be the thing that makes the most sense, that I'm going to find my greatest comfort in trying to cover all of this up. And so he goes down that road, and where he ends up instead is that his bones are wasting away, is how it feels, through his groaning, groaning all day long. You can just You can just feel the pain in David's words. You can feel the groaning that's going on for him. And I suspect that maybe there were moments in his day where he he was able to distract himself to the point where it wasn't just weighing on him every single moment of every single day, but until or while he was covering it up, there never would have been an escape from it. Never in the grand scheme. It never would have been overcome. So that's where he finds himself. Never would have gotten better. You can see that in verse 4. It says, For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David says that his cover-up just kept leading him to more and more trial, more and more struggle, more and more anguish. And he knows where it's coming from. There are two sources that we can pick up on here. In verse 5, it mentions guilt. Guilt. We all know about guilt, don't we? We've all been in that sort of situation. David knew that he was out of line, and so he's feeling this tremendous sense of guilt on him. Now, guilt we always associate with something that is wrong and bad, and it is, But guilt also has a little arm to it that is or can be encouraging because guilt is a catalyst to growth. While there is guilt, it means that we have some sense that there's something that we've done wrong. We're not so oblivious or just running our own way that we don't have any sense that there was anything wrong in doing that in the first place or that that's standing against the will and the Word of God. We at least know that, and so every time we feel that wave of guilt, or David does, it's like this constant prodding to move him to God, or to get him to uncover the sin, or to get him to confess the sin. It just keeps pushing on us, and when you feel that guilt, it should be doing the same thing for you. It should be God just saying, confess. God saying, relieve yourself of the guilt. God saying, there's something here to deal with. We're out of fellowship. Let's take a step forward. That's the first thing here. The second source of David's anguish is God. God himself. That's what he says. David says, your hand, Lord, is the one that is heavy against me. That's not vengeance on God's part. That's grace on God's part. See, God loved David too much to let him just continue to to go down this path of, of covering up his sin because as long as it was covered up, he was definitely not walking in close fellowship with God. And God's like, I want you back. I want you in relationship with me, so I am not going to just let you go your own way. And he keeps poking and prodding on David. And that's why David is feeling this anguish day and night because of the depth of God's love. And here's the thing, God loves us that much too. He loves you and me just as much. And that seems that it should push us 
the same way so that we would stop trying to cover over our sin as well. Now, sometimes that gets painful. And some people would say to you, well, that's because God doesn't love you, because God's not paying attention, because God doesn't care. No, that's just the opposite. It's because He does love you. If He didn't love you, if He didn't care, He'd just let you go your own way and not worry about where you're going to end up. But He does care. And so He keeps prodding and, keeping, and keeps inviting us back to where it is that He desires us to be. There's no grace or kindness in ignoring you while you're on your way to your own demise. Grace is God doing whatever is necessary to pull us back into wholeness, into line with truth and righteousness. Nevertheless, there's still times that we choose to run, aren't there? Some of us are choosing to run right now, and the guilt is there. So we come to the conclusion that, well, if I'm going to escape the guilt, some of us say, and I'm not ready to uncover the sin. I mean, they keep trying to, to cover that. If I'm going to escape the guilt, I'm going to need to escape God. And so, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we start to purge things from our life that would remind us of how far we are from God. So, prayer quickly goes. It's really hard to pray if you're covering up sin. Because you know you're covering it up. God knows you're covering it up. And it seems like the height of hypocrisy to pray while that is looming. It's really hard to pray when you're covering up sin. So that goes. Reading the scriptures, that goes because it's too convicting. If you're in a small group or in a Bible study, you've probably lost interest in that. You're probably not attending like you once attended. You're not as involved as you once were because it just keeps reminding you of the fact that you're trying to cover things up. Same thing happens with worship. You get less interested. You, you show up a little less often. You stay on the fringes. Little by little, there will be this spiritual attrition going on in your life. It's inevitable when we try to cover up sin. You probably know someone. You've seen them. You've watched their life, and they just sort of started to drift away, and then now they're really not engaged or involved at all. And you're realizing this is, this is what's happening. This is what happened to them. And it might be that you can see some of those signs even in yourself today. The reason we opt for cover-up is because it looks like it's the best path. For a time, David thought that too, but eventually he couldn't take the guilt anymore. He couldn't take the separation from God anymore. And so he had to do something about it, and then that leads us to the last of the realities that we find here in the great cover-up, and it's this, namely, the helpfulness of taking cover in God. So, reviewing. We had the happiness of God covering your sin, the harmfulness of you covering your sin, now the helpfulness of taking cover in God. After all the troubles that David experienced, he takes this critical step in verse 5. Look at it. If you have a pen, underline it. Do something. Mark this verse. Then 
I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Wow. That is the hinge verse in this psalm. Verse 5 right there. It makes all the difference in the world. It's clear from the content of the verse. He's confessing his sin, and he's experiencing the forgiveness of God. So it's awesome from that standpoint. But there are other clues that this is important as well. In the Psalms, 71 times there's a little word that comes up, and it is this word here, selah. Maybe you've seen that before. It comes up three times in Psalm 32 alone. And where it shows up is actually pretty telling. Now, we don't really know for sure what this means, what the translation would be, and that's why in our English versions, it's not translated. It's just transliterated into English from the Hebrew, and so we have selah. Now, there is some measure of consensus that is out there that believes that what the, what the word means, at least in part, is, is pause. Just, just wait for a moment. And so it's interesting that of the three occurrences of Selah here in Psalm 32, one of them is right before verse 5, and one of them comes right after verse 5. By the way, if you're looking for that in the text, you're probably not going to see it if you have the NIV, because what they've done is they've stuck the reference to it in the footnote, and you can see it there. Or in other English translations, it'll actually say it right there. But one is right before verse 5, one is right after verse 5. And I believe that that's significant. Because what we have here, what's right before verse 5? You've got, you've got David talking about the nature of his sin and how, how cumbersome it was on him and all of the guilt that he was experiencing and the pain day and night that he was going through. And it's like now... He says that. He puts that out there on the table, and it's like, okay, let's stop the forward movement of the psalm. Let's just, let's just pause. Let's just let that settle in. Let, that, let it sink in for a moment, the nature of that. And then comes the overwhelming beauty of verse 5. I'll confess my sin to you, Lord. I'll experience your forgiveness. That's what I did. Pause again. Let that sink in. Just let that settle over you. It's another clue to the fact that that verse 5 is is a hinge verse here, if it weren't enough just to know what it says. And it's interesting to see that David is completely coming clean here in this confession. You know how we know that? In verse 5, he uses three words for sin that he's confessing. They're the same three he spoke about back in verse 1. I'm not glossing over anything. He says, everything that was sin, I've brought my confession in the breadth of all of that. This is no partial confession here on his mind. He didn't leave anything out. And the result is that David's forgiveness is complete, and it even appears to be, as you read this, immediate. That means that God's full and complete forgiveness is also waiting for you. 
And that before you leave, before you stop watching, you can experience the relief, the end of your guilt. You can leave it here. You can be done with it. It's possible that there is some consequence that lingers because of the nature of the sin, the nature of the thing that you did, but in terms of your connection with God and the freedom from the guilt, you can leave that right here, right now. That is awesome news that comes from David, that comes from God. This is a fantastic outcome as David stops covering up his sin but takes cover in God instead. And as it is with any piece of good news, you just have to share it, right? And that's what he does here. He goes on to help other people, essentially saying, you know what, I've been through so much pain in this, let me try to help you, spare you some of that pain for yourself. So let me instruct you. See, here's the thing. There's another word here. We saw the superscription. We saw that it says that David's our author. There's another thing it says in the superscription, and it says a miskill, that this psalm is a miskill. And what that means is that it is actually a psalm of instruction, It's here so that we might learn, so that we might grow, so that we might benefit from what David has to teach us. And so going on, starting here in verse 6, he brings some instruction. Look at it. Verse 6, Therefore, let all of the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. He is saying that staying in the Lord's will is going to spare us the pain that will come along if we choose to disregard it. And he says... To make sure you do that while the Lord can be found. Now that's not because the Lord's going to go and hide. It's just that the opportunity is available only for a time because the Lord is going to return. The judgment is going to come. And so he says, if you're wise, you'll take care of it now. You'll stop covering up that sin. You'll stop waiting for another moment to deal with it. You'll address it quickly while he may be found. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. These are David's words. For a year, he's been troubling, he's been covering up his sin. He's been hiding from God for a year. Now, verse 7, he's hiding in God. If you've been hiding from God, doesn't it sound so much more wonderful to hide in God? And the blessing that he would have in store for you, the maskil continues in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule who, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. We can all picture that, can't we? The stubborn mule who just kind of dug in and, and won't go anywhere and certainly no one can influence it to, to go and do what they want it to do. We can picture that. Of course, David knows that it's not just the animal kingdom that can be stubborn. I remember when our oldest daughter was about to lose her first tooth. 
It was, it was just hanging on by the, the smallest little thread of gum or whatever that is. And uh, it was just about to fall out. We were afraid it was going to just fall out and she's going to swallow it. So we were trying to talk her into letting us pull it out. And she's like, no way. And she was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. She just walked around like that. And we're like, well, your friends have been losing teeth and, and you can be just like your friends. And she's, mm-mm. Mm-mm. And we're like, it won't hurt. I didn't know if that was a lie or not, but I didn't care. And, you know, just she didn't know. And so she's, mm-mm, mm-mm. And so we just kept kind of reasoning with her. We said, well, if it comes out, we'll put it under your pillow. The tooth fairy will come and will give you money. This is the first time she opened her mouth. She said, how much? <laughs> and then she went, mm-mm. <laughs> It just went on and on like that. And finally, we just gave up. It's like, oh, fine, swallow your tooth. No, we, we didn't say that. But we did wonder, why can't two grown adults outwit a six-year-old? Maybe you've been there. But this was one stubborn six-year-old. David here is suggesting that we can be just like a six-year-old. Or, he says, like a mule. But that such an approach is only compounding the problem that we're already in. Yet, how often do we do that? Do we get stubborn? Do we get stuck? Then David wraps up this psalm with the contrast between the wicked and the righteous, which is very much like the psalm we saw last week, finishing with a call to praise, verse 10. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in Him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. See, David coming back again to the joy that he has been experiencing. He dipped in to help us understand what are the circumstances behind this and what did it do to me when I made that choice. But he says at the beginning and at the end, here's the blessedness that we can experience. He can tell us from personal experience what differences it makes to cover up our sin instead of letting God cover up our sin. One leads to blessing, to happiness, to joy, the other one to pain and heartache and guilt. It seemed to make the choice pretty simple, wouldn't it? Yeah, we just keep complicating it. We keep making our own choice. We keep covering it up because somehow we feel that's going to be the best for me. And sometimes we justify it because we say, you know what, it's, it's just kind of over here. It's just in this one little corner of my life. All the rest is, is given to God. But you know that's not really true. We all know that, that guilt spreads. It doesn't just stay compartmentalized. It starts to influence the rest of who we are and the other realms of our lives as well. There's only one path to true freedom from guilt and a path toward blessedness, and that brings us back to verse 5 again. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I'm not sure where you are in the moment as it relates to the guilt of sin. 
It's possible that you are so far off in one direction that while you are walking apart from what God's will is for you, you're really not feeling the guilt because you don't feel the weight of what that sin really is. You don't feel the offense that it is to God. And that's the place that we need to start. It might be that you're in the midst of understanding, I feel completely guilty about this because I know that this is completely outside of God's will, outside of God's word for me. Understand, that is God pushing on you, prodding you to turn from where you are to where he would have you to be. It seems so ridiculous that we cover our sin, that we try to cover it up, we try to pretend it's not there from God. He's inviting us to free ourselves and to experience the blessedness that comes through the forgiveness of sin, through confessing our transgressions, our sins, our sin, our iniquity, and finding the path that he would have for us. So that's what I invite you to do today, to pray. I'm going to give you a moment just to pray in silence that you might confess your sin to the Lord, that you might find the blessedness, the freedom that he's talking about here, to stop being troubled day and night, anguishing over it, but to find your freedom. Take a moment, just in silence, yourself with God, and do the business that you need to do. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, which gave us a way through the cross, through the work of Jesus, to simply pray, simply talk to you, and be able to find forgiveness, to leave the guilt that maybe we've been experiencing for years and years behind, to leave it here in this place with you, and to be done with it. Lord, I thank you for the, the confession that has happened in this room, in other rooms, in, in homes, in living rooms, wherever people are listening today. Lord, I thank you for the confessions that you have heard and the forgiveness that you've promised. Lord, I just pray that we would be people who would keep short accounts with you that when the circumstances come up, that instead of covering up our sin, that we'd humble ourselves enough to confess it. Lord, I pray that you would sensitize us in our hearts enough to know and to feel the weight of the sin, to know what it is doing to you, to know that off the offense that it is to you, first and foremost. To understand the slap that it is in the face of Jesus. For us to just continue on. So Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you've offered and that you've provided in these moments 
And for those who are still covering up, I just pray that you'd soften our hearts, that you would continue to press the guilt, that we might feel it, that we might do something about it. Thank you that you love us so much that you don't just send us on our way unconcerned for our ultimate outcome, but that you desire your very best and you lead us toward it. Lord, I pray that we'd be receptive people, confessing our sin, finding our forgiveness in you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Make confession a regular part of every day because every day we have a need for it. It's when we allow it to sort of stack up and when we allow it to sort of keep building that all of a sudden it's kind of overwhelming. It overwhelms us and, and now it's become a pattern and we sort of push it aside. Make it a regular, easy thing to go to God. Say, I'm sorry. Please bring your forgiveness. What a good father we have, that he faithfully covers our sins when we confess them to him. At times we find ourselves struggling and sin just like David did, but God's forgiveness is full and complete. And it's there for all of us. There's no need to hide from him. His steadfast love is a shelter for those who run to him for help. Thanks again for worshiping with us today. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday.